We just are not where we need to be yet. We've got a long way to go. Standing taller to face the darkest and the hardest of times. We'll be taking care of all the children there. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Monday, November 2nd. That was, of course, President Obama at the top saying, don't start the celebrations just yet. The economy may be growing again, but there's still not nearly enough jobs. Today on the podcast, why... Throwing hundreds of billions of dollars at a problem doesn't always solve it. But first, Dave, our Planet Money indicator. It's a nice round number, a trillion dollars. That is the total amount that the world's governments have given in foreign aid since World War II. In other words, all the aid money sent to Africa and India and other developing nations for the last half century from every rich country on Earth, it's a trillion dollars. Which is, I mean, trillion is a big number, but it's actually not, not very much. It's literally one-third of the money the U.S. government spends in just a single year. It's a third of the U.S. budget. But it's still a trillion dollars. And at least according to Glenn Hubbard, he's an economics professor at Columbia University Business School, it really hasn't done any good. Hubbard was also the head of President George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. Um, and he's also the author of a new book, The Aid Trap. Hard Truths About Ending Poverty. And he argues that the system of giving aid, as it's currently set up, has failed. But what we need is something like a Marshall Plan for Africa. The Marshall Plan, remember, that was the plan set up by the Allied forces to help rebuild the economy of Europe after World War II. And if you think about it, it was basically a huge aid plan, one that Glenn Hubbard says actually worked. And unlike a lot of the aid today to poor countries, which focuses on building roads or health infrastructure or dams or things like that, it focused on lending money to businesses. So Alex, you and our colleague here, Adam Davidson, sat down with Glenn Hubbard. And Hubbard says something like this, like the Marshall Plan, that is the way to go. I find the aid debate a little frustrating because on one side, you have one group that says, well, why don't we just spend X percent of U.S. GDP or world GDP on aid? And as an economist, I say, well, what does that mean? Is I'm focused on outputs, not inputs, right? I don't care how much we spend. I care what the results are from it. So that part – But that is me. the view I associate um, with your colleague Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia. It is, and in, it is indeed. And, and I, I think the problem with that view is we really care about the return on aid, whether it's in health status, in growth, whatever our goal is. And so how much we spend is just not that interesting. On the other hand, there are people who say, well, aid has failed. We've spent a trillion dollars. We've got little from it. So let's stop. To me, that's wrong for two reasons. One, I actually believe we have a moral imperative to act. As an economist, I think we know how. And by knowing how, I mean focusing on local business. And that's just not what we've done. And uh, World War II is an interesting um, rhetorical point because the book is about essentially a Marshall Plan uh, for Africa. You know, the original Marshall Plan people think of as a big aid scheme, and it wasn't that at all. The Marshall Plan lent money directly to local business, and it was when local business repaid it that local governments got it. Wait, the U.S. government lent money to... The U.S. government had regional offices in Europe run entirely by business people. The head of the Marshall Plan was the CEO of Studebaker, which is a big company in, in that day. And in those days, uh, business people ran the whole plan. The money went to local businesses. When the local businesses repaid it, it went to the governments that then built infrastructure. So it turns the current aid machinery kind of on its head. It says business first and then government. So it sounds like the Marshall Plan 
it's almost like they it's like sort of airlifting a bunch of bankers in almost in a way well, yeah. sort of like making loans on behalf of governments. Yeah, the Marshall Plan uh, that we talk about in the book really is about the software of the Marshall Plan and the way the Marshall Plan worked. And that was having business people. It was having regional offices in Europe compete for the money. And the money went to local entrepreneurs and, what and business people? people. What kind of businesses? Uh, all kinds of businesses. Uh, the focus was on small and medium scale businesses because you have multinationals at the top. You have very small scale business where most of the growth and job creation comes is in the middle. That's where the Marshall Plan focused. If you go back and look at Marshall's speech at Harvard in 1947, we talked about the Marshall Plan. He said, look, it was the breakdown in local business that was the problem that aid had to solve. And I think that's directly relevant for Africa today. Now, Africa today is not like Europe was in 1947, although Greece was a very poor country in 1947. But we can borrow some of the intuition of the Marshall Plan, get some competition going, get business people involved, and most of all, focus on local business to work. And we can do it without spending new money. We're spending a lot of money on economic aid. What my co-author and I argue in the book is, why don't we take a good chunk of that money and spend it this way instead. Can you give us an example of, of, of sort of a, a, a poster child for a, a poorly directed aid money that just that, that, that's entirely wasteful and then maybe an example of where it's actually working the way you think it, 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 it should work? Oh, absolutely. What I'm talking about as being poorly targeted would be things that are focused on big grand government projects. And that's the way most of traditional economic aid has been spent. Any of the giant um, bridge, road, dam projects that are designed to, quote, build infrastructure for an area, but there's really no commercial prospects for that area. To my mind, you know, China has been the country taking the lead in big economic assistance to Africa, but they're doing it, to my mind, in the wrong way. It's an almost colonial type intervention. It's about locking up resources and promoting Chinese business. But it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, it isn't always that way. There are two economies in, uh, Kome- in the Comesa Union, which is sort of in eastern and southern Africa that come to mind. One is Mauritius, that's actually number 17 in the entire world out of 184 countries in doing business. It's made terrific improvement. And Rwanda, which of course was the site of a horrific genocide, within our memories, has jumped significantly as a place for doing business. In Rwanda's case, it's been because President Kagame has been focused very heavily on promoting Rwandan business. He's in this country a lot promoting Rwandan business. They've changed business institutions to help promote that. Something like a Marshall Plan idea would say, why don't we give even more economic assistance where countries are changing their institutions to promote business more to Rwanda, more to Mauritius, to further jumpstart their growth. And what do you mean? Is it we just give money to, like, local car dealerships and local factories, or do we give it to the government and tell them you have to to get this money, you you can't make people take six months to file some form to get a license? Well, we started with the latter. The Bush administration's Millennium Challenge account, with which I was associated, said, look, if you change your economic institutions, if you move toward an independent judiciary, help people start businesses, all those nice things, we'll give you more money. Except the you in that was the government. The idea of the Marshall Plan says, okay, if you make these competitive changes in your institutions... You get a larger allocation, but the money goes in credit to local business. And so through local financial intermediaries and business talent, we will help you. 
So it sounds like what you're saying is we just need to we just need to give a lot more people in these local com- in these local countries MBAs get, teach them how to be bankers teach them how to do all the that's what you're talking well, about Well yes doing, but right? it's not just you know getting an MBA maybe uh, right, I mean, too much or something flippant, but but, but, yeah. but the idea of uh, Practical credit analysis skills, practical business skills, how to write a business plan, how to manage a business plan. But what I have found with African entrepreneurs is it's not that people uh, are ignorant of entrepreneurship. It's that the climate for starting a business has been so stifling, it rings it out. You know, sometimes people say, well, the culture for business in sub-Saharan Africa isn't there. That's just not true. George Ayate's book, Africa Unchained, is really passionate about this, that, you know, in the 1950s, there was a very vibrant, domestic, local business culture in Africa. It is not the case that we haven't seen it. We haven't seen it in the past few decades with the aid establishment. So, And and I want to just lay out the, the, the problem. You know, I, I like the World Bank doing business in uh, analyses of each country. It's really fascinating reading. And, and I know from my travels in, in poor and developing countries, you do see, like, you, you just want to open a shop or you want to open a small fra- right. factory. Yeah, right. you, it's, it's some, I mean, when you read the doing business, um, some countries it takes three years and oh, yeah. many multiples of an annual salary to get permission to right. to open your factory, to open your little restaurant, and even and that's the official price. There's tons of corruption along sure. the way, tons of people you have to bribe, and so the so what you're saying is, um, if you look at America's economic growth or or any country's economic growth, we know that sure there's the Googles, there's the companies that come out of nowhere and become. Sure. Massive, right. huge companies. But the vast majority of, of economic growth is small entrepreneurs, even today in the U.S. Right. You know. Some of whom become large-scale enterprises but start as entrepreneurs and and mid-sized businesses. That's the way all growth uh, miracles work. But in, in most of the countries, the desperately poor countries, the Gini coefficient, the measure of inequality is huge. And you generally have – no middle class or very little middle class, and you have a small number of well-connected elites and then a huge pool of desperately poor, probably poorly served by education and health. And and aren't you talking about shifting the aid from those desperately poor folks to the rich folks or at least the connected folks because that's who the entrepreneurs are. Those are the people with the education and the background and the connections. No, no. Because remember, aid has many forms. There's certainly aid for uh, health and welfare. What I'm talking about aid in terms of economic assistance, yes, would be shifted toward entrepreneurs. But remember, as the society becomes more prosperous, prosperity is for all. Because the jobs that are created by these local entrepreneurs will also go to others in the local community, just as they have in any other growing economy. The question is how to break the trap that the elites have these economies in. And I think the intuition behind the Millennium Challenge account was, well, you could precondition a new aid on economic reform. I'm not sure that's enough to break the elite's hold. I think that what's really needed is to create a vibrant domestic middle class that will help put pressure on the elites for change. And that we can do through more of a Marshall Plan. But isn't there a huge risk that the existing elites will capture this aid and it will fuel their strength? I mean, I'm thinking of um, uh, 
uh, uh, Bruce Buena de Mesquita at NYU, who's done really fascinating uh, political economic analysis of, of poor countries. And, and his argument is aid often serves to reify, to strengthen the elites. The traditional aid has definitely strengthened the elites. It has gone through government channels controlled by the elites. I think that uh, focus on local entrepreneurs run by business people is less susceptible. Am I saying that nothing will leak out? Well, of course not. But when I start out from my precondition that we've spent a trillion dollars and wasted all of it, I think we can do better. It's it's interesting though, like like when you're talking about there, there's two things that come up when you when you say that when you use the Marshall Plan, and 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 I just fall back on the logistics. How, and I think it's when you're talking about dealing with one sovereign com- country dealing with another sovereign country, the Marshall Plan, you know. We were, you know, there was there was an occupation going on. It was easy, you know, you can you can do that as the as the allied forces bring in. Whereas if if you're talking about the U.S. or some other countries or a consortium of companies con- country countries going into another sovereign country, how, how does that work? Well, you, you know, know I mean? wouldn't describe the Marshall Plan as easy. You know, it, because it was a, I mean, because it was a success. People think of it as you know Yankee ingenuity at work. The truth is, the Congress didn't want to do this. It was the business community at the time, which thankfully forced the Congress's hand really to do it. And it really was the hard work of many business people on the ground. So I think that same model is workable here. Yeah, you don't have... I mean, how would you get the public money to the... You would have regional offices of this Marshall Plan for Africa. We have a pretty specific plan Uh for it uh, in the book that would receive allocations of Marshall Plan money and would then allocate that through local financial intermediaries, through private equity, through direct lending. You know, it might vary across country, mm-hmm. but always to business people. And would it be and would it be on the level of like sort of like a, a you know a regular small business loan in a developed country, all the way down to like Muhammad Yunus peer to almost you know sort of like micro lending type things, or is that too small? Uh, too small. This mm-hmm. would be focused on the more mid size. Um, uh-huh. The Muhammad Yunus was very kind to endorse the book, and uh-huh. I am. Uh, Bill Duggan, my co-author, and I have long been big finan- fans of microfinance, but microfinance will not get the mid-sized businesses, right. and so that's what the Marshall Plan. No, the mid-sized on. business, a mid-sized business in the U.S. is a you know is still a multi-billion-dollar business. No, but I'm even talking about let's say a working capital loan of a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So not a uh, an uh, say a woman entrepreneur by herself in a consumer goods. I'm talking about a small factory that might employ a few people. Right. Multinationals are already very vibrant in Africa on very grand scale and big family businesses as well. And that's microfinance. But there's a whole lot in the middle for which there are millions of potential entrepreneurs. I see. And the middle could be a company with one or two employees right. and a few hundred grand. It, right. Uh, it could be a store. It could be a small factory, an agribusiness. Up to maybe several million dollars right. in size, like a, bi- a textile factory right. that does a lot of bi- – okay. Right, which would still be somewhat small by U.S. business standards but not by African business standards. All right. Is this possible under a democratic presidency? I think it's not only possible. I would guess that it's – Likely, if the president really wanted to do it in the sense that for President Obama, my guess is he would feel a moral imperative to act. I think that he would like to do something bold. He probably would have the director of the OMB whispering in his ear saying, 
don't even think about spending X percent of GDP. You don't have it. The question is, you know, for the president's uh, agenda and to the extent that he wants to do something bold in Africa, I would argue this is the thing to do. It's the only thing that is doable, tangible and affordable all at the same time. This is the key issue right here is how do you get development money to the people that that need it and can use it to actually grow, you know, a country's economy. And the way it's been done with lots of big money going to big governments that can sometimes be corrupt and funnel that money other places, um, it hasn't, you know, it hasn't been working. I don't, I don't think anybody would say that system is working perfectly. Glenn Hubbard is saying it doesn't work at all and we just need to scrap it and sort of basically set up lending offices to individuals in these countries. Interesting idea. Glenn Hubbard, his book is The Aid Trap. Today on Planet Money, we are bidding a sad farewell to Laura Conaway. Laura was here on day one when the entire staff of Planet Money could fit around a very small table, and we did. I think there were just three of us here full time. Laura launched the blog, which just won a big 2009 online journalism award. Laura co-hosted the podcast in those crazy early days of the financial crisis, and she really helped build uh, our Planet Money family on Facebook and on Twitter. She's a lovely writer with a big, big heart. Laura wrote a goodbye post on the blog. It was called Conaway Blasts Off from Planet Money, which has a really sweet picture of a smiling Fisher Price person in a little rocket ship. I want to read a few of the many comments on that post. Um, one begins, excellent work on the podcast and blog. Having heard nearly all of the podcasts, you bring an important real-world point of view. We are all Mississippians. That's from David Jeter. Ray Tucker writes, Laura, the personal responses to emails have made me feel part of the Planet Money family. Thanks for your work. I will miss you. And this from Amy Ennis. Thanks, Laura. You did a wonderful job on the show, the blog, and the Twitters. I feel like I owe you big time. I would not have made so many great friends without you. Thank you for that. NPR has lost a precious star. Good luck. Thank you, Laura. I also will really miss you. As will I. And thank you also to Caitlin Kenny for putting out this podcast and the last one and the one before that. And all the podcasts, basically. You can email us, as always, to let us know what you think, planetmoney at npr.org. Or you can find us on the blog, npr.org slash money. We've got the great Dan Costello back helping us out for the next few weeks. Dan's a really smart guy. He used to work at the LA Times, before that at the Wall Street Journal, so be sure to check it out. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening. Standing taller to face the dark.